Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact. So jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Really, in order to find quality care, you often have to be on a wait list that's months long. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. The aggressive advocates who were looking to overrule Roe for so long, they really had no idea of the consequences they might be opening up. In this case, there very well may be charges that are appropriate. For example, trying to obstruct an official proceeding of Congress, right? That is unlawful. This is KCBS In-Depth. When COVID-19 struck, some referred to it as the great equalizer. After all, all of us humans can catch a virus. But over the past two and a half years, it's become more than clear that there is nothing equal about how this infection has spread. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, broadcasting throughout the Bay Area and streaming on the Odyssey app. I'm Keith Manconi. Today on the program, we're gonna talk about those who have borne the brunt of this pandemic. That is, the people who didn't get to work from home, the people who lived in cramped communal apartments, and the people who couldn't get time off to get a vaccine. Our guest today calls this group the viral underclass, and he's written a new book that explores the many ways that our COVID policy has let them down. As we'll be hearing, though, this is far from the first time that our systems have failed them. That guest is Stephen Thrasher, a journalism professor at Northwestern University, and that book is called The Viral Underclass, The Human Toll When Inequality and Disease Collide. Stephen Thrasher, welcome to KCBS In-Depth. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, And let's start with a very interesting point that you make in your book. That is that the viral underclass is a group that has been with us for many health crises already. Or uh, to put it another way, when a health crisis strikes... It's the same group of people who seem to be hit the hardest again and again. Uh, You had a bit of an aha moment noticing that uh, when you looked at the maps of neighborhoods that have been struck by COVID and compared that to the maps of neighborhoods that were struck by the HIV epidemic. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, So uh, the concept of a viral underclass, I first heard the term referring to... um, people who were born or lived with HIV or AIDS and how they were living under a different set of laws. But I started to really understand it in a a bit of a broader way at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. I was in New York at the time and I started seeing the same, uh, I started seeing infections happening along the same map lines that happened with HIV and AIDS. And I saw this happening well in St. Louis where I'd done reporting. 
And it seemed somewhat predictable to me, given the ways that I've studied um, social factors and economics and race and, and their influence on viruses and pandemics. But it also seemed strange to me because they were these were such different viruses. HIV uh, takes a very long time to transmit. It's a relatively uh, inefficient virus that has has to have many opportunities before it actually takes hold. And it takes a long time before the effects are felt. And the novel coronavirus works very differently. It's a respiratory virus. It moves incredibly quickly. It moves very casually and it easily transmits between people. And initially it was, it was affecting older people in nursing homes. And yet I was seeing the same kind of maps of where infections were happening, where the deaths were happening. Uh, and that's how I started to understand that there's a way that a viral underclass is made, I wouldn't say independently of, of biology and chemistry, um, but is very much driven by the social factors much more than it's driven by biological ones. Yeah, and that is a point that I think that your book helps the reader to think their way through that the impact of a pandemic, the impact of a virus is not just determined by the biology itself. It's not just determined by what the virus does when it's in the human body. It's also determined by how that person and how the society around them responds to that pandemic and sometimes doesn't respond. Certainly. And these things can happen long before the moment of transition. I'm sorry, long before the uh, the moment of um, infection. People's bodies are made to, to become either more vulnerable or more um, resilient to viruses, you know, long before they'll, they'll encounter them. And I had the experience of writing about one woman, her name was Lorena Borjas. She was the first person in my outer social circle who died of COVID-19. And she had already been living with HIV, she was a migrant, she was a trans woman, and she had immigrated from Mexico. And there are all these ways that, that her body was made to be more vulnerable before she encountered that virus. So she already was living with all of these health disparities. And she also put off going to the hospital in those horrible days in New York City in March of 2020, in part because I think it was very scary. The hospitals were overflowing and the hospital where she eventually was taken had refrigerator trucks outside to accept all of the dead bodies. But she'd had so many bad experiences as a trans woman and as a first language Spanish speaker that she was afraid of the shame, she was afraid of being judged, and that made her less likely and not wanting to go to the hospital. And that's an extremely common story um, with, with people who uh, are marginalized in different ways in society, that the ways that they're made to feel as if they're unwelcome and shouldn't be getting health care makes them get substandard health care and maybe not get the, the health care they need in the moment that they need it the most. And so that creates a, a double whammy where both there is this viral underclass, this set of people that are more likely to be infected, but then when they are infected, they're also more likely to suffer the most severe consequences of the illness, uh, in part because care might be more difficult to access. That's certainly true. And I've been thinking about this in relation to uh, the really horrific anti-LGBT laws and the anti-trans laws that are happening around the country, particularly in, in the state of Arkansas, where trans affirming, uh, gender affirming care has, has been outlawed. And in Florida, where they now have this don't say gay bill. And so if you sort of think about a child who might grow up in the Bay Area in California, where you actually are putting LGBT curriculum into your public school curriculum over the next couple of years, and they've grown up knowing uh, about their bodies a little bit more and knowing how to um, have a, a sex education that might keep them safe, they, they might know how to protect themselves. 
And then when you look at young people in a state like Florida or Arkansas, where they've been denied that education, they're much more likely to become infected. And when you think of people who are not allowed to get the trans affirmative, gender affirming care um, as they transition, they're being denied the opportunity to have sterile syringes and to have medical care under a medical provider. And they're much more likely to be getting their health care uh, on the contraband market in ways that are going to open them up to viruses. Um, but those are just, you know, those are just a couple of examples. We already know from a lot of research with HIV and AIDS and with COVID-19, that race is a huge predictive factor of how people are going to fare with, uh, with conditions they're already coming in with and a condition that is really, you know, a problem uh, in the Bay Area, homelessness. Homelessness is a huge predicting factor of how people are going to fare when encountering viruses. All right, just going to reintroduce you again real quick. Once again, this is KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. Today in the program, we're reflecting on the pandemic and how it came to be that the burden of this virus has been shared so unevenly. Joining us for that conversation, we're speaking right now with Stephen Thrasher, a journalism professor at Northwestern University, talking about his new book, The Viral Underclass, The Human Toll When Inequality and Disease Collide. So... Let's return back to the the core of this book, that term, the viral underclass. We've already talked about a few ways that this viral underclass is reproduced again and again with new uh, successive waves of uh, viral infections as new viruses come on the scene. Uh, talk about a, a, a few more, because uh, I know there's, there's, there's quite a few. There's socioeconomic fa- factors, there's racial factors. Uh, explain a little bit more why this is a class that does get reproduced again and again. Well, I started writing the book... Um or when I started doing the research that became the book, I was writing about a a young man named Michael Johnson who was arrested for um, uh, allegedly transmitting HIV and exposing HIV to six other men. And I found out that uh, one, that's really bad policy. It doesn't help reduce HIV. It's just very punitive and and increases stigma, makes people more likely to become sick uh, and infected. And two, it's very disparately applied to black people anywhere in the world where there are these laws. California recently reduced their laws. Illinois, where I live, um, decriminalized HIV transmission entirely, but about half of the states in the country do still have these laws and about 70 countries around the world do too. And so I started understanding race itself was a factor in in how often people encounter viruses and how they're going to fare with them. Um, Disability is is a huge factor. You know, we've seen people who are disabled are more likely to be poor, they're also much more likely to put in congregate care settings. And congregate care settings, people may remember from the beginning of the pan, of the COVID-19 pandemic, were the place where people were dying the most. One in every 10 uh, people died in nursing homes, but also one in every 12 people died in congregate care settings. And that included many people who were younger but disabled. Um, and so it's not just the physical disabilities that, that people have that might make them more vulnerable. It's the way that they are made to be poor and to get substandard care that makes them uh, extremely vulnerable. Um, I also believe that incarceration and prisons are a major vector of how a, a viral underclass is made. Um, when I was doing research for the book, I, I had a day, and I, I write about this, where I was looking up on the New York Times tracker of the the biggest kind of super spreader sites in the country. And I believe 15 of the 17 of them were all prisons. The biggest one was um, San Quentin in California. And the prisons, you know, exist under and in blue states with blue legislatures. Uh, You had a time that same summer, I remember as well, where you didn't have enough firefighters to 
fight your um, forest fires because or your wildfires, because so many of them are incarcerated and so many of them were sick with COVID-19. Um, and so the U.S. Is, has had this outsized relationship with this virus. We're 4% of the world's population, and we've had between 20 and 25% of the deaths or cases in, on any given week. Um, and that tracks very along the same lines as our rate of incarceration. We're 4% of the world's people, and we have 25% of the world's incarcerated population. Speaking with Stephen Thrasher, author of the new book, The Viral Underclass. So, I mean, the question that that raises for me is, it has been one of those conundrums throughout the pandemic that I think a lot of people have been trying to find good answers to, which is, you know, why did the American healthcare system underperform in such a big way over the course of this pandemic? I mean, there were uh, sh shortages in supplies. There was uh, snafus at the CDC. There was miscommunications at every level that I think really poisoned the well at a lot of different points throughout the pandemic. And for a wealthy country that had you know, to some extent prepared for exactly this scenario, it is a little bit baffling that we really stumbled out of the gate quite that hard. How far do you think this notion of the viral underclass goes towards helping to explain what's happened here? American society is set up, uh, it's a capitalist society that's set up to differentiate people between class. And that is extremely felt, you know, in the healthcare system. It's one of the places where it becomes the most clear. People will literally live or die whether or not they have access to healthcare. Um, and so even though some of these other countries had difficulties as well, like the, the United Kingdom or France, they did not have the issue of um, people not having a relationship to the healthcare system. You know, they, they have the National Healthcare Service or they have socialized medicine. And so people already have a relationship with that system. And one of the things some of my colleagues were looking at uh, in the first year of the pandemic that was uh, a bit surprising to understand was how countries were doing was actually not predicated by how uh, how wealthy they were or how poor they were. The kind of biggest thing that could indicate how they were going to fare was how much of their health budget did they put towards preventative medicine versus dealing with emergencies. And so sometimes some very, very poor countries, particularly in Sub-Saharan Africa and in Southeast Asia, could have quite modest or, or very poor health budgets, but they've been using those health budgets for preventative care for decades because they are dealing with, you know, Ebola, as many of my colleagues are dealing with now in Uganda, if they're dealing with maintaining Ebola, dealing with West Nile virus, or even with the, the previous incarnation of the previous strain of monkeypox, uh, they've been dealing with it proactively. And so communities would have a relationship with the people who are doing this, this preventative work. And if you've known somebody for uh, you know, 10 years and they give you mosquito netting to deal with um, trying to keep malaria cases down. And then they come along and tell you there's this new thing that you need to be careful of and social distance and wear a mask and blah, blah, blah. Then you might be inclined to do so. And there's no such relationship with the healthcare system in the United States. You know, tens of millions of people have been left for absolutely dead by the system. Uh, many people's only encounter with it is in the emergency room. I think we spend a, a majority of our healthcare budget dealing with emergencies, much more so than we deal with preventative care. So there's a broken relationship there. And then you have people in the middle who are continuously expecting that they could become economically bombed. And that's one of the things I think a viral underclass can help us understand things happening around the world. But one of its particular 
ways that it plays out in the United States is that we are a country where if you become infected by a virus, you can easily be made impoverished, even if you were a middle-class person. And that's simply not the case, you know, in England with the NHS. You go into the NHS, you don't leave with a bill. It's not going to debilitate you. Um, Rather than people who don't have insurance now cannot get COVID treatment for free, and they can end up with debilitating hospital bills, which will give them worse health. And with the monkeypox epidemic, it was really heartbreaking to see people diagnosed with that virus being mandated to a one month quarantine and getting no state support. So, and effectively, you know, if you were a bartender or waiter, I was seeing GoFundMes for these kinds of things, you were on your own or had to beg your friends and the state could mandate that you stay home, but not was, but the state was not mandated to give you any kind of financial support. And that could create really a devastating financial effects in people, which will not only harm their financial health, but will harm their, their physical health perhaps for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Well, and I do want to get your take on the response to the uh, monkeypox outbreak, uh, but just to kind of sharpen up the picture that you're painting for us right there uh, a little bit, just in this, uh, hypothetically, had America taken some of these realities uh, a little bit more seriously and had it been thinking uh, a little bit more uh, thoughtfully uh, about the way that some of these people were being treated and, and, and the impact, how different would the response have looked? What would an ideal response have looked like? So ideally, we would have um, pivoted to some kind of lockdown or quarantine for as much of the population as we could muster. Um, That happened to certain degrees. And then we would have made sure that the people who were truly doing essential work were getting the protection and care that they needed, you know, that they were getting um, PPE, that they were getting uh, gear and medication, and of course would be the first person to get vaccines when they were available. And that was very hit or miss. A lot of people got nothing of the kind. Um, Medical workers ended up faring relatively well in facilities where they had good equipment and not well where they didn't. Uh, But medical workers often did better than other professions and and actually not, you know, in the Bay Area, the study out of the UC Berkeley School of Public Health did one of the most comprehensive uh, uh, tests or uh, studies on what professions fared the worst. And they found that it was actually line cooks in restaurants that had the highest rate of mortality. Um, And we should have had at the beginning something that would help those line cooks. One, quarantine hotels where family members and people who lived in tight quarters Uh, places where family members could go to quarantine either with COVID or to escape COVID. Um, That would have helped. Um, Two, we could have done a lot more ventilation earlier on, which still hasn't happened. And, And three, I think that we should have figured out ways to distribute food through the government because line cooks did and restaurant workers took such a hit economically and physically in their own bodies. You know, many, many people died. Um, And it wasn't necessary to keep open McDonald's or to keep open restaurants. If we could have kept people in place and figured out ways to distribute food safely by workers, well paid for the government, uh, working for the government to distribute food to to households, you know, we we maybe could have gotten the viral load down faster, um, rather than having so much of it bouncing around. And, you know, eventually we got some kind of financial support for people, but a lot of people lost a lot or lost everything in those first few months. Um, And that was too slow to happen. And we also could have had um, a just kind of 
different relationship with with how to get uh, how to get people treated when when that was eventually possible. Um, the rollout of the vaccine was happening in a way that people who had the most time on their hands and sometimes had the least risk were the most able to get the vaccines first. When the people who were doing the essential work who you know, needed that protection, um, th they were the ones that needed the vaccine first. But if you can't sit on your phone all day or your laptop all day looking for appointments, you might not get it uh, first or you might get it last. And the people, many of the people who are at home who had the least risk were able to get it before, before the essential workers out doing the most dangerous work. All right, just going to reintroduce you one last time. Once again, this is KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Manconi speaking right now with author Stephen Thrasher about his new book, the Viral Underclass, The Human Toll When Inequality and Disease Collide. Uh, we only have uh, a few minutes left and still want to get you on a, a couple more points. I mean, uh, I, I guess if we're talking about learning our lessons on this front over time, we do have somewhat discouraging examples in very recent memory, uh, you know, talking about all the failures of the COVID-19 pandemic, then out of the blue, we get yet another outbreak uh, of a, a viral disease, in this case, uh, monkeypox. And we see uh, a lot of the same dithering and a, a lot of the same uh, problems and uh, difficulty in rolling out the, the vaccine and uh, also difficulty rolling out key medications. So uh, I, I guess a sign that we are perhaps not learning our lesson? Yeah, it was really um, everything with monkeypox was very almost everything with monkeypox was disheartening this summer. I'll I'll end with one thing that was encouraging about it. But from the federal government standpoint, it was um, extremely disappointing. Uh, myself and other people saw this coming. We we saw the outbreak happening in Europe and in Canada a couple months before it was coming to the United States. We were asking the Biden administration to act on it, and we had just come through this process of COVID that had socialized people into being ready, willing, and able to take vaccines, um, we just didn't have them. And, and the U.S. government has said since September 11th that they had a smallpox vaccine uh, in, in anticipation of bioterrorism that, that might happen and that they could that they could uh, vaccinate, you know, 300 million people quite quickly. And nothing like that happened. They only sent out a few thousand vaccines uh, initially when they got them. The Biden administration had a purchase order on like 300,000 and really dithered with it. Um, but most importantly, I think the, the biggest lesson that we lost from COVID was that we did build up this vaccine distribution system that was getting out at its height more than 4 million shots a day. And we could have maintained that. It probably couldn't have worked at that speed forever, but we could have maintained something like that system where people would just go to, you know, um, I know it's not called Candlestick Park anymore. <laughs> um, uh, your baseball field. Oracle Park. Thank you. <laughs> I haven't been. Yeah, so that was when I was a kid. Um, you know, but people could go to these large scale places to get that, to get their updated COVID booster every six months. And they could go there once a year to get a flu shot. And if something, you know, came up like monkeypox, they could go there to get uh, treated for that. Um, but the U.S. completely dismantled that system. And so we only have like 4% of our population currently boosted. It's all being handed back over to the private market. Um, and the only encouraging thing I, I saw come out of monkeypox was at a community level, uh, gay organizations, uh, even sex clubs and sex parties were totally ready, willing, and able and put the infrastructure very quickly to do all the community work to actually get people vaccinated. They just needed the vaccines. So it was heartening to see coming out of COVID that um, people's chops are, are quite um, 
up and ready to go in terms of helping one another and creating mutual aid. But at a certain point, you need the, the resources of the state. And we spent a lot of time waiting for those vaccines um, when there were people ready to not only take them, but nurses and healthcare workers ready to volunteer to give them at scale as soon as they could get the vaccine, which took too long. Yeah, well, I've certainly spoken with a number of people on this program that would agree with you on all of those points. Well, uh, closing out the program, I want to bring in a point that you made in your book that uh, I I think was very thought-provoking, which is that viruses really are this biological fact that can really challenge the way that we think about ourselves and our sense of uh, selves that are separate from the rest of uh, society, the rest of humanity. Talk about that and how viruses have really been a teacher for you in a way. I took a class when I was in graduate school about how different species will not think of themselves as individual you know, or not act as individual units and how there have been societies in human history that don't conceive of themselves as different units. Um, and so for me, one of the biggest things I feel like I've learned from viruses is that they disprove the idea that I am a discrete person separate from other people. And that's one of the reasons why I think disability studies and disability activism have been so helpful for a lot of us to understand we need interdependence, not independence. You know, we're all relying upon each other. And I think uh, at the societal level, certainly in the first year of the pandemic, those of us like myself, privileged enough to stay at home, were very dependent on people who are going out and, you know, bringing food or delivering packages and things like that. Um, We would not have survived, you know, independently. We're we're very much dependent on one another. But at a biological level, I am fascinated by how viruses are just constantly moving between us. And when they do, they they change our DNA. They actually change the structure of our biological being. um, And they're very connecting. And as a gay man, the work that ACT UP did and and gay activists did um, before me help me really understand that we have a we have a communal responsibility. HIV moves through the community and there are things we can do in terms of safe sex that slow that process down or stop it. Becoming, uh, getting on medication if one is HIV positive can stop that process. But we are all in, re- in a relationship to do this together. I'm HIV, HIV negative, but um, people who are HIV positive and I, you know, this is like something that we're managing together amongst our, our community. And as a gay black man, I've been very aware that one in every two black gay men are projected to become HIV positive. And so when it's going to affect one in every two of us, it's very, very much a shared responsibility. And I think COVID gave us that opportunity to understand that as well, that this virus is like moving through a collective body. It's not any one individual body. Um, Right now, this week, we're averaging about 39, 40,000 cases in the U.S. of COVID that are uh, uh, relating to or ending up uh, becoming about, you know, 400 deaths a day at the same time. And not everybody becoming infected is um, necessarily likely to die, although the risks of getting long COVID are getting worse. Um, But those viruses are working their way to vulnerable people. And so, if somebody's in a nursing home, if somebody's over the age of 65 or is an immunocompromised uh, immune system, they can't just by themselves avoid this virus. We all have to keep that virus from ending up getting to them. And so that's how viruses really taught me um, that we're all sharing this body and no one person can decide what happens with it. No one person can um, start or stop the transmission by themselves. But if we all work together, we can bring 
we can bring disease and illness down amongst how we're how we're experiencing this. And that to me is kind of the the biggest lesson viruses have taught me. Yeah, well, again, a, a very thought-provoking book, and I think a, a very useful lens for understanding the past two and a half years of uh, pandemic struggles that so many of us have gone through. Uh, we have been speaking one last time to Stephen Thrasher, a journalism professor at Northwestern University. His new book is The Viral Underclass, The Human Toll When Inequality and Disease Collide. Stephen Thrasher, thanks so much. Thank you. And a quick note to listeners that Stephen Thrasher is going to be in the Bay Area this week and actually making a live appearance for an event uh, this coming Wednesday, October 19th. That's going to be at Book Passage at the SF Ferry Building. He's going to be in conversation with Piper Kerman, author of Orange is the New Black. Again, that's this Wednesday at 5 p.m. You can learn more at bookpassage.com. That's going to do it for the program. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Manconi. Stay safe, be well. Talk again next week. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 